Before we get to this episode, just to say thanks to everyone who's bought my new book, Champion Thinking, How to Find Success Without Losing Yourself. Published by Bloomsbury, the response has been terrific. It's an Amazon bestseller. It's been top 20 in the airport charts consistently, and the reviews have been terrific right across the board. And if you like this episode that you're about to hear on Flow, you'll be sure to enjoy Champion Thinking. Head to my website, simonmundy.com or Amazon, Waterstone, Smiths, places like that to get your copy. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Life Lessons Podcast with me, Simon Mundy. This podcast has a simple mission, to have discussions that reveal something important about life and how best to live it. My guests range from the biggest sporting names on the planet through to neuroscientists, philosophers, psychologists and world-renowned thinkers. We talk about things like how to skillfully relate to uncomfortable thoughts and feelings, the power of acceptance and psychological flexibility, how to get your circadian rhythms in sync to feel your best, right through to the nature of reality. These conversations and the bite-sized episodes have the power to change your life. In this episode, I'm re-releasing a conversation I had in 2021 in which I explored what the experience of flow in sport can reveal about the nature of reality. Now, one theme that's arisen time and again with the sports people I've spoken to over the last few years is the experience of flow when we lose ourselves in whatever it is we're doing. But what is that me that seems to disappear? Now, that's a big question. And here to help address it is Rupert Spira, a philosopher interested in the nature of reality, the nature of consciousness and what's known as non-duality. Now, nothing is more obvious and undeniable than the fact that we exist and that we're conscious. Now, in this case, when I say conscious, what I mean is aware. For example, even when we're asleep, we are still aware of our dreams. And right now, you're aware of the sound of my voice. You're aware of what you can see, what you can feel. Awareness is the underlying thread that links all experience. Now, there is something called the hard problem of consciousness, and it's one of the great scientific conundrums. It's our inability to explain how a lump of tofu-like matter, in other words, our brain, creates consciousness, conscious experiences, or awareness. And Rupert, amongst many other people, argues we're looking in the wrong direction. This isn't a new idea. You know, take this quote from one of the most important physicists of the 20th century, the Nobel Prize winner Max Planck. He said, I regard consciousness as fundamental. I regard matter as derivative from consciousness. We cannot get behind consciousness. Everything we talk about, everything that we regard as existing, postulates consciousness. In this episode, this is all brought back to the experiences people have while in flow. We also talk about egos and how we project godlike status onto, for example, sports stars because of their creative talents, when in fact they're as normal as you or I. Rupert Spira, what a delight to have you here. How are you? Very well. Pleasure to be with you, Simon. Thank you for inviting me. My pleasure. This has been uh, two years in the making, so apologies it's taken so long. Not at all. It's very nice to be here. Now, before we get on to the serious stuff, quick question for you. Your hair looks very much in control. We're in the middle of lockdown. I've got the longest hair I've had since I was about 17. <laughs> How have you managed to sort of keep control? 
Well, just a little bit of home trimming from time to time. Don't be deceived. Don't don't look too closely. (laughs) (laughs) My other half insists she's never letting me have it cut short again. So it's been a bit of a revelation. Anyway, that's that's not what we're here for, is it? We're here to talk about sports, about the nature of reality. And is it fair to say this is a bit different, a bit of a different conversation really for both you and I? Yes, I'm not used to speaking to someone specifically about sports. And um, yes, I'm a little bit out of my comfort zone. And and for that reason, very much looking forward to it. (laughs) Oh, so you're excited by being out of your comfort zone as opposed to in any way nervous about it? No, I'm not nervous about it. On the contrary, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. The people that I normally speak to tend to be within the parameters of non-dual philosophy or people that are interested in spiritual matters. In other words, I'm accustomed to preaching to the choir. So you're coming from a, from a field <laughs> that, that is slightly out, outside of this. I'm sure you'll ask me questions, for instance, that I've never been asked before, questions perhaps that I've never even considered before. Well, fingers and I, I welcome the opportunity to um, take this uh, non-dual understanding into a, a field that certainly I have yet to explore and perhaps a field where it is not very prevalent. Yet the experience of it perhaps is very prevalent. The, absolutely. The experience is common to everybody. I'm normally talking to people who have specifically focused their interest, have formulated their interest in these matters. Everybody experiences what we might refer to as the non-dual understanding. Everybody, all seven billion of us, not everybody formulates that interest specifically as non-duality. But yes, everyone has experience of it. Absolutely, yes. And I have to say, I'm glad that I am speaking to you now at this stage of don't tell me the score, if you like, because I've, over the course of the last couple of years, had an opportunity to speak to people the best of the best, the real elites, I'm talking World Cup winners, all-time greats in various sports, who've been able to explain and share moments where they have experienced it, really that which we're going to talk about in time. So yes. I'm glad that actually that we are talking now rather Good. than then because there are some concrete examples that we can pull up. Good. Right. So you mentioned philosophy. When you're filling out, I don't know, something to do with tax or something like that, How do you describe what you do? You're a teacher. You have lots of videos. People come to your workshops. But to the layman, what would you describe your job as? I I always try to avoid having to put a label on myself because any label doesn't quite fit. So I tend to um, tailor the label to the circumstance. Not that I've travelled for a while, but if I'm travelling to the States, for instance, I'm going through immigration and they look at me suspiciously and ask me what I do, then I will say I lecture on philosophy or or I write about philosophy or something. But it's not. I would never normally call myself that. I would never normally call myself a, a teacher in the normal sense of a teacher as someone who has a a body of knowledge, uh, mathematics, history, politics, and, and, and disseminates that knowledge to a class. It's not like that at all. I don't feel that I have a body of knowledge. I, I have an understanding such as it is, and I love to share that understanding with anybody that's interested. Perhaps I would say that I, I, I write and speak about um, the perennial understanding that underlies all the great religious and spiritual and philosophical traditions. That's not a bad way of uh, summing it up at all, uh, Rupert. And we are talking really, and you talk about the nature of reality, and you mentioned it's the basis of all religions and etc. But actually, what you're talking about, it's not a religion. It's born of experience. Yes, it's very much not a religion. Although I would suggest that it is the, the essential understanding from which all the great religious, spiritual and philosophical traditions arose. Of course, each tradition packaged 
this universal understanding in the local language and customs of the time, giving rise to a, a wide variety of religions, spiritual traditions, etc. Et but if you take away the packaging, the local temporal form in which the understanding was packaged, you can distill all the great traditions into a, a single, simple understanding. Of course, when I speak about this understanding, it is also couched in terms that are of my era, of my generation, of my culture. And in future generations, we'll speak about the same understanding in very different terms. But I do my very best to use terms that are drawn from our everyday life. No belief is required. It's an understanding that comes directly from an investigation of our experience. There is no subscription to or affiliation with any particular point of view or religion or tradition. No belief is required. In fact, on the contrary, we start, or one of the places we might start, it would be a, a questioning of absolutely everything that we believe. And we're going to do some of that. So we'll just park that there, let that sort of sink into people's uh, consciousness for the time being. And let's go back to a bit of the sport. So in the interests of full disclosure, when I have a bit of time to myself, which isn't a lot, between listening to Peppa Pig, homeschooling, cleaning up, staring out of the window, trying to write my book, whatever it may be, I've got two default sort of short habits that I go to. They both involve uh, a well-known streaming service. And one involves watching old clips of tennis. I'm a tennis nerd of the very highest order. I remember every Wimbledon winner since sort of 1972 onwards. It's one of my favorite games to play or showing off, if you like. So tennis on the one hand. And the other is watching non-dual videos that over the last few years that's become my other default so I'm very excited to bring those together but I do recall you have touched on sport occasionally it's not the your your main area that you go into and I just want to explore a little bit about your own interest in it am I right in saying I know your son is a football fan I've heard you talk about him going to Wembley am I right in saying that you you support a football team and in particular Manchester United that's true. When I was young, I was a very keen football player and an ardent football supporter. Then, particularly when I became interested in these matters, I, I kind of neglected my interest in sports and all my energies and attention went into this exploration that we're talking about now. But then when my son Matthew was born, he became very interested in um, playing and watching football. So the, the, the closet soccer fan in me uh, was given a second lease of life. And I really became interested again, vicariously through Matthew. And, you know, we lived in uh, Shropshire at the time. So Shrewsbury was our local club. So age six, I took him to his first match. And then he went from, from Shrewsbury to uh, Stamford Bridge and Old Trafford and occasional games at Wembley. And, and, and so, yes, he, he is a great fan and I very much enjoy watching football but even more I enjoy watching tennis and playing tennis I don't claim to be anything like the uh, aficionado that you are but I do enjoy watching tennis and in fact if you know how um, YouTube suggests videos that you and, and this betrays your history <laughs> and you, you would find quite a lot of tennis videos in particular videos of Federer and very often slow motion. So um, yes, I share that with you. But the answer to your question is yes, I, I enjoy watching sport and uh, football and tennis particularly, and, and in particular playing tennis. Well, that's great to hear. So I am, as I said, I'm a huge tennis fan. It's weird. I, I was probably about seven or eight. My mum took me to my local club and I still remember hitting the forehand and I just fell in love with it. And thereafter, I used to get up every morning and I would check CFAX, which was the internet of its day, and check the results. And I'd get up to watch Transworld Sports, to watch two minutes of tennis. That was what we'd have of a given week. And I'd get the Wimbledon highlights video. So now, absolutely spoilt for choice. But I've always wondered why. So I, I was brought up actually playing rugby. And, um, and I still go and watch rugby with my father, or did do before the pandemic. 
But the difference is, I think, tennis is the only sport that I don't need to watch live. So I can easily go back and watch old matches, particularly involving Federer and his balletic beauty. And for me, it's almost a meditative process. It's certainly how I relax. What is it about tennis, do you think, particularly related to your understanding, that perhaps draws me in in that way? Because I know you're an artist, so I'm I'm interested in the the parallels that you perhaps see with Federer and, and what I consider to be the art that he creates and the art that you have grown up loving. I would suggest that the human mind is a a relatively narrow segment of a much larger intelligence, and that that intelligence is is both the essence of the human mind and informs the human mind. So when when the mind is performing, we could say that it has two sources of information or inspiration. It can either refer to its own past knowledge or it can be informed by this larger impersonal intelligence, which is its essence. Now, if the mind refers to its past knowledge, its memory, then its response to the current situation will simply be an extension of that past. Nothing wrong with that at all. But it cannot be more than a reformulation of the past in reference to the current situation. Now, that can be true of a philosophical question, a mathematical problem. It can also be true of a a situation in sport. You're you're playing sport. Your opponent has hit you a, a certain ball. And your response to it is the response that you've been training for for 15 years. You know exactly what to do. You play the response by the book. And it's a good response. You play the ball, you get the ball back, you may win the point. But it's a response that comes from your memory, from the past. Now, there's another possibility, mathematics, philosophy, uh, music, art, or sport. There's another possibility that when presented with a situation, if you're a tennis player, the situation is the ball, the ball that you you are facing, that you don't reach into your memory for the response. You don't reach into the past. Your mind goes silent. It goes quiet. It doesn't search in its memory bank for the correct shot. It goes quiet. And in doing so, it opens itself to this larger impersonal intelligence from which a new response may come. And this new response is an intervention of this larger impersonal intelligence into your finite mind in relation to a a tennis player, it translates into the shot they play. It becomes inspired. It is not simply an extension of the past. Now, that is what makes a truly great artist or great sports person, someone whose mind is not simply reformulating the past in response to the present circumstance. It's someone whose mind is open to this this larger dimension. And these are the inspired players, the inspired artists, the inspired mathematicians. These are people whose minds bring into our experience knowledge from a, a different dimension. And the reason we love to watch these people And this can be expressed by a a mathematical discovery or a a new idea in philosophy, but it can also be expressed physically in response to a shot. And the physical action of one who is informed by this larger intelligence conveys that intelligence experientially. So when we're watching Federer. We're not thinking about any of these matters. I'm just analysing it and formulating. But we feel almost in our own body the inspiration from which it came. In other words, people like this, they are artists that give ordinary mortals, ordinary people, I'm not suggesting that they are not ordinary mortals, they are, they're just inspired artists. But they are, for most of us who are not inspired artists, they give us access to this dimension in ourself. And that is what everybody ultimately longs for. Not everybody has 
knows their way, knows how to find that access to that intelligence in themselves, not least because we have been trained by our culture just to refer to our past knowledge. That's basically what you get when you go to school and university. You have to study lots of past knowledge and assimilate it all and then reformulate it all in response to a question. So um, we have a very narrow view of education and the use of the mind, but everybody really longs for is not simply a repetition of the past. Everybody longs to break through the limitations of their mind and have access to this larger intelligence. And great artists, great thinkers, great sports players give us access to that dimension. I'm interested then, at the risk of upsetting, let's say, some um, Djokovic, Nadal, whoever else, fans, I think of Roger Federer, and he's won the Fan Favourite Award for certainly 13, 14, 15 years straight. And... I remember I was at Wimbledon in 2019 for the final. And even when he's played Andy Murray on centre court, he inspires this devotion among fans. Now, his personality might not be for everyone's taste, but the, I think the way he plays um, attracts, well, the facts back it up in terms of the fans' favourite award. The way that someone like Roger Federer plays then, because of his that creativity, do you think that what you're talking about there, that access to not just the training, not just the the drills that he will have done, hitting forehand, cross-court, backhand, cross-court, time and time again, but those flashes of, goodness me, I've never seen that before. Yes. Is that then him dipping into that uh, vertical yes. dimension you're talking about? And is well, that what makes him so popular? It's not that he's dipping into it. It's that he's open to it and it informs his the way he plays. But it doesn't just, you know, why do I not find myself performing like that on a tennis court? <laughs> Why doesn't that inspiration fall into my mind? Why does it fall into his mind? <laughs> Why don't I have inspired ideas about um, mathematics or astrology? Because my mind in relationship to mathematics and astrology and my body in relationship to tennis has not been trained. It's not the right shape. So my mind has not been trained to receive that inspiration. So Federer has done all the drills that has prepared his body and indeed his mind, of course, it's also very mental. So that has prepared the, the vessel, so to speak. The vessel is the right shape. And because the vessel is the right shape, it is open to this influx of inspiration. The vessel of my body and mind is not open to inspiration in relation to mathematics or tennis, but my mind is regularly inspired with new understanding in relation to what we are speaking of now. Why? Because I have been thinking about these matters quite intensely for 40 odd years. So my mind has been shaped in a certain way. Yeah. And the inspiration, it comes from the same intelligence, but the inspiration is tailored to the particular shape of each of our minds. So if you were a mathematician, you would be inspired by a new understanding in relation to mathematics, if you're a tennis player, it's going to be that shot that nobody knew was possible because it had never been done before. It was not something... <laughs> federal. He didn't train for it. He didn't train to do that. Nobody even believed it was possible. He had never even imagined it, but it came in the moment in response to a particular circumstance, that is a particular shot that he receives from Nadal. Because of all the training he's done, his mind is the right shape but he doesn't just dip into his past knowledge because he is open and in the flow. He is able to produce an inspired response. And so I think that players of this caliber, they model for us what it is like to perform in a way that is open to this greater intelligence. We all have moments of it. I'm not saying that everybody has access to it. Everybody has felt this. But these are people, the great artists, the great sports people, they are people that regularly uh, tap into this broader intelligence and they bring its content into the lives of ordinary people. And that's why we love them. We project onto them kind of godlike status. What we really love actually is not the person. It's not even the ideas or, or the game that they bring. It is that they give us access 
to this dimension in ourselves. They facilitate our getting in touch with this dimension of our own being. That's what we love. And we project that love onto the person. We sometimes lose sight of that, don't we? That it's the act we see or the play yes. we enjoy. And like you say, the experience we, rather than the person itself. That's right. they are the, just people. And we sometimes the, lose sight absolutely. of that in this culture. These people are just as mortal and ordinary as we are. But the deeper, this universal intelligence, if we can call it that, this broader intelligence that they have access to is beyond the limit of the human mind. So it, they seem to have access to some non-human realm. In fact, it's not non-human. It, 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 it lies in the very depths of each of our minds. But because most of us are not in touch with it, when we see it, we think that's, that's inhuman. The commentators, you've heard it so many times. With, with that's that, not possible. That, it's not possible. <laughs> it's not human. So they are recognizing that Federer, in this case, has tapped into a, an intelligence that is beyond what is normally humanly possible. And for that reason, we, we give it the status of divine, something beyond the human. And then we credit the person with this divine status. We treat them like gods. They're not gods. They're just ordinary people like you and I, but they have access to a dimension of intelligence that most minds only occasionally access. And that's what we love. We mistakenly project onto the individual the status of a, of a god. That, that's a mistake we make because the person is just a very ordinary person like all of us. But what is not ordinary is that the realm of intelligence that they have access to and that they bring into the very ordinary human domain for everybody to witness and experience for themselves. I, I won't mention any, any names, but sometimes when you see uh, everyday interviews with some of these godlike players, the great footballers that do things that we just didn't know was possible. And as a result, we tend as a culture to project godlike status onto them. If you ever meet any of these people, or even if you see an interview of them outside, completely out of their field, you think, oh, he's just an ordinary person. They seem so so ordinary. They are ordinary. They're, they're just like us. They're, they're ordinary. But when they are performing, they transcend what we normally consider to be limited human experience, and they bring into the field of limited human experience, something that comes from beyond that or rather is prior to that. I think that's why I admire so much the world-class performers who've managed to stay grounded. I think of Joss Butler, who I spoke to on the podcast recently, who's World Cup winner, removed the bales when England won the Cricket World Cup, one of the most destructive battles of all time, but very, very humble and down to earth. And I really admire people who's... Yes who don't take those projections on board compared to, because I've, I've interviewed some sports people who, who've been, dis, I think, have lost a little bit of a touch of reality because they've bought into that projection as well. Absolutely. Not only have they bought into that projection that other people confer on them, but they have also identified personally with the source of inspiration to which they had access. And they think, I did that. No, they didn't. It was because they were absent as a person that they were open in that moment to the inspiration. Not understanding that, they claim the inspiration for their own personal achievement. Not only do they claim inspiration for themselves, they also have the projection of other people. And these people become massive egos. And then when they cease performing their sports, they often lose the adulation of the fans and they no longer have any inspired performance to identify with. And because their sense of their identity was invested in their godlike status that others conferred on them and that they conferred upon themselves, they then go into depression and spiral down into addiction in, in the worst cases. However, many of the really great players don't identify 
either with the godlike status that other people confer on them, nor do they claim the inspiration as their own. They know that they were in the zone, so to speak, that something that was larger than them was operating through them. And someone who understands this, they don't become more arrogant. They become more humble. That's why really great artists and musicians and philosophers and sports people, they are truly humble because they realize that their bodies and minds were just used in the service of an intelligence that was intimate but impersonal. And when you see that, when you have both, you have the inspired player, but you have a human being who has been humbled by their experience. Now, that is truly inspiring. And when, when, you see, when you see someone that has both these qualities, I mean, we know there are really inspired players in sports. They are also big egos. We love what they do, but they don't inspire us in the same way that someone who is both an inspired athlete, but also has this humility in the face of an intelligence which they do not claim for their own. You mentioned addiction and slipping down that path, but I was a sports reporter for Radio 1 for a long time, fortunate enough to cover all the big events. And something I found slightly tragic in places was was the ex-pros who perhaps would had an attitude somewhat of, well, you'd notice them in the media, in the media zone, because they still had that kind of peacock-esque strut around if you know what i mean yes but the ones i really admire are the one (laughs) yeah the swagger i played once you know i i've done that you know and the one the people i've spoken to i really admire and if i can just mention a couple of names so will carling when he retired he had the ego knocked out of him because he had a bit of a rough rough time but now he has no memorabilia he's like that was then this is now and is very very humble and i lovely chap against surprised a lot of people Jamie Peacock he always said who was the Great Britain rugby league captain the reason he found um the ability to retire easily was because he he never thought oh I I am a rugby player he thought I am Jamie and I play rugby so he he didn't have that identity yes or Mike Brearley the cricketer Goldie Sayers Chrissy Wellington these people who are who are humble it's interesting watching those ones who haven't been able to let go. It almost, I hate to be rude, but it's almost a little bit tragic to see, to watch. Yes, and to be fair to them, we can't blame them or judge them. The projection, I mean, not only do they have access to this inspiration, which enables them to perform in these superhuman ways, that that, that is not nothing. They also have this huge projection from people that that is something to handle i don't think we can blame judge or criticize someone who who does become an inflated ego as a result of this it requires a really a depth of understanding not to succumb to that handling a projection like that requires some understanding There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Before we move on, Rupert, just just very quickly, because I do just want to draw parallels and a very quick one on this. You know, for me, it's watching tennis or sport of all kinds, but particularly tennis. For you, I know you talk about pieces of art that really move you and 
for my wife to be when she sits down to play the piano, when my best friend, when he listens to house music, it comes in, in many forms, but it's all, it's all the same stuff. Exactly. The, the, the great artists, by which I mean those artists who produced work that was not just an extension of what went before them. Nothing wrong with that. Wonderful things have been produced by people who just continued the work that their predecessors had done in the arts, in sports, in music. And... But the really great artists, just like the really great sports people we, we spoke of, are, are those whose work is not just informed by and an extension of the past. Their minds are open and their minds are informed by. That's what inspiration is. It means an influx of the spirit. The spirit of the, is the traditional name for this larger intelligence. So a mind that is inspired is a mind that is filled with, with this broader, larger intelligence. And in the arts, this gives rise to works of art that um, have the capacity when viewed or listened to, or tasted, or seen. Or they have the capacity to take the viewer, or the experiencer, the, the, the listener in the case of music, the viewer in the case of um, painting, or sculpture, or dancer. They have the capacity to take the viewer, or the listener, the experiencer, to the place from which the work of art originated. So the work of art becomes a kind of portal that gives us access to that larger intelligence from which the work of art proceeded or emanated in the first place. And this is why we have art in our culture. I mean, I mean it's why we love art. It's not just a bourgeois luxury. It is a, one of the portals that connects us to the very essence of what it means to be a human being. Okay, right. We haven't directly explored some of the things I'm keen to. So now's a good time as ever to dive in. And I think a good place to start is, um, is flow. This idea of flow. And like I said at the start, I'm pleased we didn't speak two years ago because I now have direct or anecdotal evidence from the world's top sporting performers of experiences of flow. So if I give a few examples and... Um, people can go back and check this out for themselves in the Don't Turn With The Score back catalogue. So we have, for example, Johnny Wilkinson. When he kicked the um, winning drop goal in 2003 to give England the World Cup, a beautiful moment in many people's memories, um, he said that, and I'm quoting from memory, so it won't be uh, completely accurate, but he had an experience of there was... It wasn't me kicking it. It was a knowing of it. Then we move on to uh, Frankie Dettori. On that day when he rode the Magnificent Seven, the last ride that day was on a horse who was, who was meant to be a complete dud, a complete outsider. And uh, Frankie told me that he um, didn't put any pressure on himself. And I actually listened back to it this morning. I won't do the Italian accent, but he said something like, it was like I was there, but it was like I wasn't there. And then Damon Hill once, when he was driving at Suzuki with uh, Michael Schumacher bearing down on him. And this wasn't long actually after Ayrton Senna had died. And he said, um, Ayrton, if you're up there, help me out here. And then he said he, at that point, experienced this moment of there was no, it was like I wasn't driving. And then actually, if you listen to what he says, actually, I, it probably was me, la, la, la. But but he had that experience as well. Yeah. And then I had a fascinating conversation with Goldie Sayers, who's a bit of a go-to for me with uh, podcast chats. Um, she's been on a couple of times, and I'm thinking of getting her on again to talk specifically about this because we had this, this really interesting chat about flow. And she talked about when at the two, 2008 Olympics, and she did a throw, and and it was like she was observing everything happening in her body in slow motion. And oh, my shoulder's in the right place. Oh, this feels good. That feels good. But it was happening rather than she was there. And she came out with this delightful phrase. And she said, what she thinks is the beauty of sport that a lot of sports people miss in retirement that perhaps they're not aware of 
is this experience of seeking effortlessness, which I thought was a really lovely way of putting it. I don't know if you agree or not. But yes, so in each of those cases, there is this dissolution of what we perceive to be the self. Now, there's usually this idea, isn't there, in sport? You hear it on Match of the Day. It's all about trophies. Trophies are what matter. But actually, when you speak to these people, it's these experiences of flow, the characteristics of which are not only a distortion of time, but a dissolution of self. They are the ones that are really like, whoa, that was something else. So could you just talk a little bit about that from your understanding in those moments? And how perhaps, you know, we we think we seek the achievements and the accolades, but actually perhaps we're seeking those very moments. Absolutely. It's not the trophy. The trophy is, at best, a symbol of that moment, that experience. The trophy symbolises that, but it is not that. The trophy by itself, if you melted it down, it's not worth much. Do you spend your whole life training intensely you give up everything for 20 30 years of your life for a handful of silver that's worth thousand dollars or something it's is that what people are after of course it is not what they are after is not even the experience of flow itself but the loss of the sense of being a separate self that is entailed in the experience of flow that is what people long for to lose their sense of being a separate self. Now, why do people long for that? Because the separate self is an illusion, albeit a very powerful one that dominates the thoughts and feelings and the subsequent activities and relationships of almost all people. Because we have been conditioned to believe and feel in ourselves as separate selves. This feeling of separation puts a restriction, a limitation on us. And everything the separate self does, everything the separate self does, is ultimately motivated to shake off the shackle of separation, the, the, the felt sense of separation. Why? Because everybody, all seven billion of us, has a sense that what they essentially are is not separate, temporary, finite, limited. That's why we love freedom. We love freedom because we, everybody knows that what they are inside is ultimately free. It's why we resist anything that curtails our freedom. So what everybody is really seeking is to be divested of the sense of separation. And in the flow, one is acting, but one is not acting as as a separate self. One is simply participating in the universal flow. The trophy is simply a symbol of that experience. Because after all, we call the universe a universe. We don't refer to a multiverse. We call it a universe. It is one thing. The universe is one thing. Whatever its ultimate nature or reality is, it is one. That's what the word universe means. We all know this. It is There is one universe. Now, the separate self, it's not an entity. There is no real separate self. But the separate self that most people believe and feel themselves to be is a belief where, whereby we, we separate ourselves out from the universe and believe, and more importantly feel, that we are a discrete, independently existing entity. So with this belief, the universe is divided into self and other, me and you, mind and matter, ultimately. But this is an illusion. This, is, this belief in self and other is a belief that is superimposed onto the reality, which is one, which is a universe, a single being. It, it appears as many things, but its essence is, is one, single. And we all know this. We all intuitively know this. And we, any sense of separation from the whole, it has two consequences. Unhappiness on the inside and conflict on the outside. These are the two inevitable consequences in the belief in separation. Unhappiness on the inside, conflict on the outside. Nobody likes unhappiness. 
Nobody likes conflict. So everything the separate self does, it does in order to find happiness and to have no conflict. The common word for the absence of conflict is love. So everything the separate self does is a search for happiness on the inside and love on the outside. In other words, what the separate self is really seeking is to restore its experience to reality. It's what the filmmaker Pasolini said. He said, I want my films to restore to reality its original sacred significance. But what he meant was, I film to evoke in people the experience that reality is a single, whole, indivisible whole. And we participate, as apparently separate selves, we participate in that whole. We are part of the activity of that whole. But we never actually exist as a discrete and independently existing entity. We believe we do, and we pay for that belief with our happiness, with, with, with our innate happiness. We forego our innate happiness when we believe ourselves to be temporary, finite and separate. And that is the experience that everybody, the great mathematicians, the philosophers, the artists, the sports players, but also the ordinary people, everybody, all seven billion people are longing, all we really ever do is try to divest ourselves of the illusion of separation and, as a result, taste the nature of reality. That is what sports people, that's what artists, it's what philosophers, it's what scientists, it's what everybody is seeking, to be divested of the sense of separation. And the trophy is simply a symbol of that. It's worth nothing in itself. And this is corroborated. All the experiences you described, they are in the moment of these um, heightened performances, they are temporarily divested of the sense of separation. And it's ecstatic. They feel joy. They feel love. They feel peace. Yeah. What yeah. they're really feeling, is they're not having an extraordinary experience. What they're actually experiencing is reality as it is. <clears throat> it only seems extraordinary by contrast with the previous belief in themselves as separate selves. A couple of thoughts that sprung to mind when you mentioned about the medal. Goldie Sayers got her medal 11 years after the 2008 Games because um, basically the person who got silver in 2008 turned out to have failed a drugs test. So she was awarded this medal 11 years late. And then uh, when we spoke, she found it quite amusing that she now has it hanging on a silver stag's head on her wall above a new recycling bin. And she says she finds it amusing how strangely unattached to this, this medal is. And then you mentioned as well about tasting reality. Or, and Johnny Wilkinson said this at the height of his success. So around sort of 2003, he would feel that all the pain and stress outside of the game were leading to the enjoyment. But then between the whistles, when that he was like, oh, I can let go. And that was the beauty. And he would always say, he would happily swap that second just after the whistle had gone when they had won whatever trophy it was, whether it be in his last match of his whole career for his club or for England. He would swap that for five minutes before when they were still playing and he was still engrossed in the moment. You mentioned the separate self, okay? Now, some people are going to be thinking, what on earth are you on about? <laughs> I don't mean to be rude, but that it's going to be new to some people. So I've got two questions, really. First of all, as I understand it, and do correct me, it's us getting muddled up in, in objective reality. So thoughts, feelings, perceptions, sensations, et cetera, et cetera. But yes, if we could just run through a quick, you know, self-inquiry from the point of view of the old netty netty, not this, not that. So people could perhaps understand a little bit more what you mean when you say that the separate self or the illusion of the separate self. If you could just run us through that, that'd be great. We all feel that we have been the same person throughout our lives. You, you feel that I am Simon now. You feel that I was Simon five minutes ago. I was Simon five days ago. I was Simon five years ago. I was Simon when I was a five-year-old boy. You feel that there has been a continuity of your identity that has run through your life. And that that continuity is it's the continuity of who you really are is yourself that has continued. So what has continued in your life? 
what is it in your experience that accounts for this conviction that you have, my identity is continuous? Is it your thoughts? Thoughts are obviously not continuous. You can think one thing one day, you can think the opposite the next day. So your thoughts obviously don't constitute your essential identity. They are something that appear to you. They are superfluous. It's like a shirt that you put on. Your thoughts are not essential to you. There are times when you're not thinking at all, but when you're not thinking, you, whatever you essentially are, remains in the absence of thought. Yeah. Same is true of your sensations. You have your hand on your face at the moment. That's a sensation, yes? Uh, take your hand away. Yes. That sensation goes. Yeah? The sensation's vanished. Did you vanish? No. You, whatever you essentially are, has remained. That is true of every sensation you have ever had. So the sensations through which we experience the body cannot be part of our essential identity. They are added to us and removed from us like a sweater. The same is true of your feelings. The same is true of your perceptions of the world. The same is true of your relationships. The same is true of your activities. All of these, none of them are permanent. They all come and go. They are intermittent. So your conviction that you are always the same self cannot be derived from any of the changing elements of experience. So what does it come from? What is it that accounts for your absolute certainty? I am always present. I'm always myself. I'm you want me to answer this, right? Yes, yes. That which the, the, is aware of it. Exactly. There is one element of your experience that doesn't come and go, namely your, your being or we could say the fact of being aware. So everything that we are aware of is temporary. It comes and goes. Thoughts, images, feelings, activities, relationships, sensations, perception. All of these are, are temporary. They are what we are aware of. But there's one element of experience, the fact of being aware, consciousness, that remains consistently present throughout all changing experience. So I would suggest that awareness or consciousness, or I use the words synonymously, uh, is our essential identity. Now, if you now imagine, we're not asking anyone to believe it, just consider it as a, as a possibility. If we were to remove from awareness everything that can be removed from awareness, what can we say about awareness itself? To give you a, a visual analogy, it's like saying, remove everything from the room in which you are sitting that is not essential to the room. So take out the lamp, take out the chair, take out the radiator, take out the picture, take out the table, take out the computer, take out everything. To even remove the walls, they have not always been there. Take out everything, remove everything that can be removed. What is the nature of the space that remains? Now, we do the same just thing. Just space. Just space. And, and let, let's do it with space first. Okay, we've removed everything. What, what can we say about that space? It, it is. It is present. What else? It doesn't have... There's no resistance in it. It, it, no it resist has no objective qualities. It has no objective qualities and therefore no limitations. Now, do exactly the same thing with the space of awareness within which our experience arises, remove our thoughts. It's just an, a, a thought experiment. Just imagine we remove everything from awareness that can be removed from it. Thoughts, images, feelings, sensations, perceptions. What, what remains? Just the fact of being aware or awareness itself. Now, what is its nature? It's open, unresistant. So there's no resistance in it. It's open, allowing, accepting, yes. free... And as you would say, un unlimited in that it has no it, start it, and no it's end. It's unlimited it, because there's nothing in it. We, we've emptied it of content. The content of experience has been removed. So it, it's, there's, there's no form. 
There's nothing objective in it, like the empty space of your room after everything is... There's nothing objective there. And because there's nothing objective there, there's nothing limited there. So what we are saying is that the very essence of our self is unlimited. It is only when our essential self of pure awareness becomes mixed up with the content of experience that it seems to acquire its limitations. In other words, we could say that our essential being is clothed in experience and seems to become, seems to acquire the limitations of experience. Thoughts are limited. Feelings are limited. Sensations are limited. So when our essential being or the fact of being aware becomes mixed up with the content of experience, it seems to acquire its limitations. The unlimited, open, empty space of awareness becomes or seems to become a temporary, finite, limited self. And that is, a, it doesn't really become that. It all takes place in the imagination. We believe, and as a result, we feel we are this separate, limited self. And because we believe this, our innate qualities, as you said, openness, allowing, imperturbable or undisturbable at peace our essential qualities of peace joy openness are veiled or obscured because we have identified ourselves with the content of experience the separate self now feels itself to be limited to be a fragment and as this fragment there are two emotions that are essential to it one it feels incomplete and therefore it is always seeking happiness. And two, it feels that it is fragile, uh, vulnerable, and therefore it is always seeking to protect itself. So these two primary emotions or activities of, of seeking and resisting characterize the apparently separate self. But all we are really seeking is not the object, the substance, the activity, the trophy, the, what we are really seeking is to return to our essential nature. We are seeking to, to be undressed, to be divested of the limitations that we have become mixed up with. In other words, we're seeking to return to our essential nature. That's all anybody truly ever longs for. Indeed, the desire for intimacy in relationship is the desire for the loss of the sense of separation. That's what intimacy in relationship is. We feel one with the other. We lose our sense of being a separate self. That's why we love intimate relationship. It's not really the other person. It's the loss of the sense of separation that we look for. If we invest the other person with the ability to affect this loss of the sense of separation in us, then we place on them an impossible demand because another person cannot really do that for us. And that is often the, why conflicts in relationships begin, is because our partner fails to live up to our impossible demand. What is the demand? Please remove from me my sense of separation. Well, in the early days, our partner does do that for us, so we love them. But later on, they can't possibly do that for us. So then that's when the conflicts begin. And then we're back to square one. So just to go back to the separate self and objective experience. So thoughts. So we are not our thoughts. So that includes memories, uh, images, images, reasoning, etc. So thought. Yeah, thoughts. So that's all bracketed under thoughts. Perceptions. So what we see, what we hear, what we taste, taste smell. Touch, smell, yes. Um, it's the way we experience the world. Perception, yes. Sensation. So if I punch myself on the arm, oh, that's a sensation, but it, it doesn't stay. The way we experience the body, sensations yes. in that sense. Yeah. Yes. Feelings and emotions. So all of these things come and go, but that which is aware of all of them, that never comes and goes. And that's that experience of I am that has passed all through our lives. We always yes. experience it, ourselves as yes. being present. And so this is so when you said um, unlimited, I just want to dig into that because that, that I think can give an image perhaps of 
oh, if something's unlimited, you can almost imagine it extending off into the distance forever and ever, amen. But actually what it just means is, so thoughts are limited in that they have a beginning and an end. Same with feelings, same with sensations, same with perceptions, anything that can come and go. Whereas the awareness that we experience everything with, it, we can't turn it off. I can't, I might be able to shut my eyes and not see you, but I can't, I've struggled to shut my ears and not hear you. The awareness is always there, even, for example, in sleep, when we're aware of, yes. of dreams. So it, that uh, the awareness is to... unlimited in that sense. Yes, I was going to say, even if you do turn off your perceptions, your sensations, your thinking, and you don't see anything, you don't hear anything, you don't think anything, you don't feel anything, as we, we do, for instance, in deep sleep or under anesthesia, or, or, the awareness is still present. It's just not aware of anything. In other words, deep sleep is not the absence of awareness, as many people think it is. It is the awareness of absence. In other words, what has been turned off is not awareness. It's the faculty of thinking, sensing and perceiving. That is turned off in deep sleep or under anesthetic. But awareness is, is like the sun. It is never turned off. It is always on, always shining, always present, always aware. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Life Lessons Podcast with Rupert Spira. There is actually another hour of this conversation to go. I'll link to the full-length episode in the show notes. If you have any questions, do get in touch via my website, simonmundy.com. 